And if you will open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 2. Please hear the word of God. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the promises that uh, Peter expounded when he was um, when he was asked so urgently, "What must we do?" And he said that we, through Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, have forgiveness of our sins, that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that this promise is not for some for three thousand people who lived. 2,000 years ago but that promise is as true today for us as it was for them for we are among those who are far off we are among those whom the Lord our God has called to himself and Father I pray as we have opened your word and have read it and now um, look, look to it to be proclaimed. I pray that if there are any here who have not repented of their sins, who have not fled in faith to Jesus Christ, that you would draw them now in this next half hour. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was going to say in the next two or three weeks that we're going to have the joy of baptizing Addison O'Brien, but uh, Anita came to me uh, during the uh, greeting time and said that um, Amber and Jody hope to be here next week with Addison. So we'll see. We'll play it by ear. Uh, Jody, uh, Amber's husband, uh, is working up in, in um, I think, Indiana right now. And so when he can get back, they are looking forward to uh, baptizing um, their, their uh, child. I am looking forward to it as well. Unfortunately, infant baptisms happen too infrequently at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Um, and it's easy to forget the scriptural reasons for our practice. But one of the most important uh, scriptural reasons why we baptize infants appears in our passage this morning. 
And so I want to look at this issue of why we baptize uh, infants in anticipation of Addison's baptism. But infant baptism is not the major issue of this passage. The major issue of this passage is the call to faith and repentance. And so to examine um, this idea of faith and repentance plus um, this idea of infant baptism, I've organized the sermon around the question, who should be baptized? And uh, I've answered that in the uh, first three points of the sermon. You have sermon notes on the back of uh, your bulletins if you so desire to use that as a point of reference. But uh, I hope this morning that we will gain a better understanding of faith, repentance, and infant baptism. The point of departure for our sermon this morning is the day of Pentecost. And just to remind you, we're preaching through the book of Acts. Um, And so... uh, In Acts chapter 2, the believers were all gathered together on the first day of the week uh, and the sound of a violent wind came rushing through the house and all the believers who were there gathered were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in other tongues, other languages and they then went outside the house and the crowds were there uh, gathered for the Feast of Weeks, for the Feast of Pentecost and as the believers walked out in the street, they're praising God in different languages. The people hear them, they think that they must be drunk, and the crowd gathers and Peter begins to preach. And he preached the first Christian sermon. Last week we looked at the sermon in some detail and we left off at the conclusion. Verse 36 is the conclusion of his sermon. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And when he said this, verse 37, many in the crowd were cut to the heart. They were overcome with grief at the realization that they had participated in the murder of the Messiah. And they cried out to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And that is in verse, uh, 30, or in verse 37. And it's interesting, their cry... Because they cry out, brothers. I hadn't noticed that before this week. Um, All the hostility is gone. It has evaporated. Their accusation of you are drunk has become a cry for help. And they call the apostles brothers. There's no attempt in verse 37 to evade their guilt. They recognize that they are guilty, that they are helpless. They don't even say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? They simply say, brothers, what must we do? Sounding a note of complete and utter helplessness. They are at the end of themselves. Their hearts have been cut right down to the quick. I guess it's fingernails that are cut down to the quick. But you get the idea. The hearts are cut down even to the dividing of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and all those things from Hebrews chapter 4. But they are pierced. 
And that is the appropriate response to the preaching of the gospel. They are undone. They cry out to Peter. And Peter responded here in our text in verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I ask this question. As Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Who should be baptized? Well, anyone who flees in repentance to Jesus Christ should be baptized. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. Well, that raises for for us the question, what is the meaning of repentance? One of my favorite books, I love reading the Puritan paperbacks. I have a whole series of them. And one of my favorite books is a small little book by Thomas Watson. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance. It's out of print now, but you can, which is a good thing because you can go and look it up on the internet and uh, access it on the internet. Uh, but Thomas Watson uh, takes two chapters to examine what is the meaning of repentance. And like a good Puritan, he breaks it down into small and minute steps and examines each step uh, in exhaustive detail. And so he comes up with six aspects for the doctrine of repentance. Sight of sin. You've got to see your sin. Sorrow for sin. You've got to grieve over it. There's got to be a sorrow for it. Confession of sin. Confessing um, your sin is is part of repentance. Shame for sin. Uh, hatred for sin. And and then finally turning from sin. I. Howard Marshall in his commentary on the book of Acts has a very uh, concise definition and biblical definition of repentance. He says it is a change of direction in a person's life rather than, a, than simply a mental change of attitude or a feeling of remorse. It signifies a turning away from a sinful and godless way of life. And far be it for me to to add to, a, to, to uh, Howard Marshall, but I'm going to, because you not simply turn away from a godless life. Repentance means turning to God. Um, and you know what repentance is. You've been sitting here in this congregation, uh, most of you, for many years. Um, But the difficulty is, and the reason why I need to spend a few moments defining repentance, is because we like to add false substitutes for repentance in order that we can keep our sin with a clear conscience. There are many people who confess their sin without sorrow, uh, it's been institutionalized in the Roman Catholic Church. You go and visit the priest, you confess your sin, and you receive absolution simply because you confess your sin. Sorrow is not necessarily a part of the equation. But confession without sorrow is superficial repentance. It is a false uh, repentance. Sorrow without confession is emotionalism. This is usually when someone gets caught. They've been caught red-handed in a sin. They have been confronted in their sin. They know that there is nowhere to turn. And they are very sorry for that sin. 
but they only confess because they have been caught. That is simply emotionalism. That also is superficial repentance. And then change without sorrow. Oh, that's Pharisaism. That's legalism. Bringing the change in your life without the confession and without the sorrow. That's what the Pharisees did. And that also is equally false. And again, the reason we bring this kind of false repentance into the church is because it allows us to stay in the church while living in our sin. It allows us to live with our consciences. Yeah, we've made an effort at repentance. You have in your notes that repentance is the flip side of faith, and that is important to emphasize. Because those who practice a false repentance also exercise a false faith. True repentance always, always, always carries with it faith. Or to put it differently, true faith always leads us to true repentance. So I want to ask you this morning, I want you to ask yourself before God, what is the quality of my faith? And one of the ways you can answer that is what is the quality of my repentance? Or you can turn it around. What is the quality of my repentance? Because that sheds light on the quality of your faith. Make no mistake, going back a few weeks to the book of Galatians, God cannot be mocked. You cannot hide from God. You sow a false repentance. You reap a false faith. I want to transition now and ask, what is the meaning of baptism? Since he says, repent and be baptized. Well, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. There are two sacraments of the New Testament. The Lord's Supper and baptism. Oh, that I wish that we practiced the sacrament of baptism as much as we practice the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Would that we would be baptizing adults regularly. Would that we be baptizing children regularly. Baptism is a sign and a seal of engrafting into Christ. And I've got that uh, here in your notes. And I took this from the Westminster Confession. Baptism is a sign and a seal of engrafting into Christ, of remission of sins, of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, of adoption, of resurrection unto everlasting life, of our engagement to be holy and only the Lord. When it says that it's a sign and a seal, this is language from uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 11. So we're using biblical language when we say it's a sign and a seal. The sign means that it signifies something. It signifies all these things that are listed here. Uh, Seal means that it authenticates or confirms the promises that are made. These promises of remission of sins, of engrafting into Christ, of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, of adoption, resurrection unto eternal life, of our engagement to be holy and only the Lord's baptism seals those promises. 
or, or is a, a, a sign that God has sealed those promises uh, with His own word. I wish that I had time to go through and show you the scripture references for all of these uh, things that I've listed here. Uh, because all of these things in this definition of baptism uh, reflect scriptural language, are lifted uh, out of scripture. And uh, so this is not something that the Westminster, the framers of the Westminster Confession back in the 1640s just lifted out of the air uh, willy-nilly. They looked at the scriptures. You can, you can see all of these things, this engrafting into Christ, remission of sins, regeneration by the Holy Spirit of adoption, of resurrection unto eternal life, our engagement to be holy and only the Lord reflected in scriptural language. If you want to test me in this, you can look at, uh, get a uh, Westminster Confession of Faith with scripture references um, appended to it, and it will show you all of these. Baptism is also an initiatory rite of admission into the church. Because when you come into the church, you are identifying with the triune God. That's why you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are also signifying that you believe everything that is signified by the sacrament. All these things that you have been engrafted into Christ. uh, That you have received the remission of sins through Jesus Christ alone, so on and so on. That these are yours. Baptism doesn't give you these things. You are saying that God has promised these things and you have received them by faith. Well, if I put it in those terms, you may be asking, well, what about children? Because they are unable to believe these things. And so let's transition to the second point. That who should be baptized? The children of anyone who flees in repentance to Jesus Christ. Verse 39. The promise is for you, to those whom he's preaching to, and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When he says that this promise is for you and your children, there's no other promise in all of Scripture that Peter could be referring to other than Genesis chapter 17. We read in our responsive reading uh, from Genesis 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter is not just pulling these promises out of the air. Peter is rooting these promises, or rather, these promises are rooted in the Old Testament. In Genesis 17 specifically. For God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. Also, even this promise, all who are far off... As we saw just before we prayed for our tithes and offerings, this promise that's for all who are far off is rooted also in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6. So I want you to look um, at verse 7. You can just uh, of Genesis 17. I did not put the scripture references uh, in here. You can just open your bulletin. It's under the, in the middle column. 
under the pastor, uh, pastor's reading. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 7 that he calls this not a temporary covenant, not a lasting covenant, but an everlasting covenant. He is saying that this covenant is everlasting. Well, how long is everlasting? Well, it's everlasting. And the heart of this promise is that I will be, and the heart of this covenant is I will be a God to you and to your offspring after you. It is a covenant that is not, that has never been abrogated or suspended. In fact, the new covenant, and we are now living in the new covenant, the new covenant is simply the unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant is built on the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. We saw when we went through the book of Galatians several months ago uh, when Paul would refer to Abraham that he, he said um, specifically, he said clearly that the promises that we have received are the promises given to Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Notice here the parallels to our passage in Acts uh, in Peter's preaching. There is this promise given to Abraham and those promises given to Abraham come to us. And what is the substance of that promise? Well, as Peter says it, Uh, that we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So the promises given to Abraham are still valid today. And the sign of circumcision in the New Testament has been changed to baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What's happening in the book of Colossians, what was happening in, in Colossae, was the same thing happening in Galatia. There were Jews there that had worked their way in amongst the, the uh, Gentile Christians. And these Jews were telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised. And so Paul is writing in Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 that they don't need to be circumcised. That they've already received a, a circumcision made without hands. And, and this circumcision made without hands was by the Spirit of God. This was their regeneration. And it is signified in baptism. Verse 12 in Colossians chapter 2. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised. 
So he's saying their baptism signified their circumcision. Their circumcision was not a circumcision done with the hands of men. It was done by the Holy Spirit as he uh, killed their dead hearts and gave them a new heart in Jesus. As he raised them to life in regeneration by the power of his Spirit. And so, uh, circumcision has been changed to baptism. Baptism supersedes circumcision. But nowhere is the promise that God will be a God to us and our offspring abrogated or superseded. Rather, as we look at the New Testament, we find that this promise, far from being abrogated or, or superseded, is actually confirmed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And the issue here in Corinth was um, believers who had an unbelieving spouse were growing dissatisfied and they wanted to leave their uh, unbelieving spouse and Paul says you can't do this. Now if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, that's a different story. But you cannot leave your unbelieving spouse. And he says here that this unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That's quite a statement. But Paul doesn't see a need to vindicate it or or try and confirm the truth of it. He just makes this statement. And you get the idea that the truth was already understood and conceded by the uh, Corinthians. He makes the statement. And he expects that they are going to receive it as the truth. And this question of what does it mean that the children are holy... Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are in a sanctified in terms of, of uh, a saved position. Because even the unbelieving husband is somehow holy. But what is very clear is that this state of holiness, whatever this state of holiness is, is in direct connection with their relationship to their believing parent. Just because one of the believing parents is a believer, the children stand in a holy relationship to God. Well, doesn't that sound strikingly similar to Genesis 17, which sounds strikingly similar to Acts chapter 2, verse 39? There are other passages. Uh, Luke 18, where Jesus welcomes the children, and these are not uh, technon, uh, which are toddlers. They're not pideon, which are small children. The word here for the children is brefe, which is small infants, very young infants, that are, Jesus says, let the little infants come to me. Also, Paul addresses uh, as children, uh, or Paul addresses children as part of the covenant community. Ephesians chapter six: uh, All parents um, 
favorite verse, children, obey your uh, parents and the Lord, for this is right. My children have known that even before they could talk. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 says essentially the same thing. And Paul addresses these children as part of the covenant community. And then you have all of these household baptisms in the book of Acts, where Paul, when a person comes to know the Lord, it says he baptized his entire household. Also in in Paul's letters, he talks about baptizing not just individuals, but entire households. What I'm, the point I'm trying to make before we move on uh, from this subject of infant baptism is that the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 17 is an everlasting covenant that is being unfolded in the new covenant. And the promises of that covenant have not been abrogated or superseded And so it's because of this unity, this continuity with the Abrahamic covenant that is still in force, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. That is still, the promise is still in force, as Paul, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2.39. It is in keeping with these scriptural commands that we baptize infants. We don't believe that they are saved when we baptize them. I'll say a lot more about that when I get the joy, Lord willing, of baptizing uh, precious Addison. But uh, we believe it is scriptural. That is the only reason we do it. We don't do it because of tradition. We do it because we believe God in the scriptures commands us to do it. Well, thirdly, in keeping with this question, who should be baptized? Well, any Gentiles who flee in repentance to Jesus Christ. Not only is the promise for you and your children, but all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's funny to me that Peter did not understand the full implications of his own statement until you get to Acts chapter 10 when he meets with Cornelius. But... um, What this promise says is that the gates of heaven have been flung completely wide open. Yes, it is a narrow road, but anyone from any nation, from any race, from any culture may enter through those gates. And it is heartbreaking that so many around the world will never hear the good news of Jesus Christ and will never come to Him because they've never even heard of Him even though the gates of heaven are open wide to all nations, to all races, and to all cultures. One of the reasons why I love our denomination is because our denomination prioritizes world missions. Um, I was taught by the man who discipled me that PCA is a mess, but it's the best mess going. And one of the reasons why it's one of the best messes going is because of our um, our insistence and um, and emphasis on world missions. That's also why I'm grateful to this congregation for its. Um, emphasis on world missions as well. And it is a tragedy that even though the gates of heaven are open wide to all people's races and cultures, that some of you this morning who are listening to the gospel being proclaimed 
will not come to Jesus Christ because you're unwilling to repent of your sins or to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. I plead with you. In fact, Peter pleaded with the crowds. Look at verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I plead with you, I exhort you, come to Jesus Christ. Don't let anything stand in your way, especially your sins. Especially your disinterest. Especially your self-centeredness. Repent of it all. Give it all to Jesus. Let Him crucify it and give you that new life. There are benefits to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what Peter's doing and uh, after he says that, uh, tells them to repent and be baptized, he gives them these benefits of coming to Christ. The first benefit we see in verse 38, and that is the forgiveness of sins. You would not believe how many men have made deathbed confessions to me. Men who believe the gospel, but were not as close to Jesus Christ in their life as they should have been. And they knew it. And they always felt like they needed to repent of certain practices and be more committed in their their faith and just never really got around to it for whatever reason. And their guilt hangs all over them. They, They carry it for decade after decade after decade. And they reach near the end of their life And they are very anxious to talk to the pastor. And guilt holds them back until they are staring death in the face. I want to tell you, if you were one of those men or ladies who are doing this, Jesus offers you complete and total forgiveness of sins. You don't need to live with the baggage of that guilt. Come to Him now. Live with Him now. Experience the joy and the life that He will give to you. Another benefit of coming to Jesus Christ is He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 38, You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are doubtless some of you you who live with fear gripping your life day in and day out. You fear the future. You fear what might happen to one of your loved ones, especially mothers are given to this. You fear present circumstances. You fear past circumstances that may come forward to bite you sometime. The good news is... God has promised that when you come to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift. He takes up residence in your soul. There is nothing under heaven or earth that you have to be afraid of. Children, when you're laying at bed at night and you're tempted to be afraid of the dark, God has promised 
to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. If He lives in you, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Greater is He who lives in you than He who is in the world or anything in the world. You can take comfort in Him. You can have that peace that passes understanding because God lives in you. That is the promise. For those of you who feel powerless in your walk, for those of you who feel powerless before your sin, that promise is yours as well. He said you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God Almighty living in you. That's power. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that you are more than an overcomer. More than a conqueror through Him who loved you. And then lastly, the promise. It's not only for you, not only for all who are far off, but also for your children. You know, if I didn't have this promise... My parenting, my chief parenting goal would be to control my children. To make sure that they have memorized the gospel outline. To make sure that they could repeat it back to me. I would protect them at all costs to make sure that, that they would not be, that no physical harm would come to them. I would worry night and day if I were not in their presence to protect them. I would worry that, um, that they would be hearing things that would possibly drag them off or give them a change their worldview. And, and that would be my goal, is to control them, to, 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 to protect them. And I would probably do more to drive them away from faith than actually see them come to faith. But I know, because the promise is not only for me, but also for my children that my children are in the hands of God. My job is to expose them to Jesus Christ day in and day out. My job is to repent when I sin and show them visibly my faith and my trust in Christ who has forgiven me of my sins. My job is to entrust them to God who has promised to be a God to me and my children. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for the promises, the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ. Father, were we to stack up all of the benefits that all the wealth in the world could buy, They pale in comparison to the benefits of forgiveness of sins. The benefits of having God Almighty living in our soul. And the benefits of knowing that you give your promises even to them whom we cherish most in this life. Our own beloved children. Father, I pray as I know many prayers are being lifted up at this moment uh, by parents who have unbelieving children. God, I pray that you would remember your covenant promises and that you would draw all children 
who have received these promises to Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.